Jesus Christ! Will you fix your marriage or get a divorce already? Well, we tried a couple's therapist. That's Earth therapy. You might as well ask a horse to fix a merry-go-round. I mean, he'll try his best, but mostly he's just gonna get horrified. On November 12th, 1918, after everyone was waking up from a deep slumber, they would arise to see a world that was very different from the one just a day before. November 12th marks one day after the end of World War One, and for historical purposes really marks the beginning date for the modern world we inhabit today. And yet the end to all this bloodshed wasn't necessarily marked with overjoyous celebrations, not even in the victorious powers. Instead, for nearly everyone involved, the end of World War I marked a deep period of contemplation and reflection, a pivotal moment where people asked themselves what they had lost, what they had gained, and where to possibly go from here. However, for some people, a different question preoccupied their time. For many people, they asked themselves, how the heck did this war happen? How were human beings able to inflict such atrocious acts on one another over the course of four years? But they also asked themselves, how were people capable of getting up out of the trenches in the first place and facing the storm of steel that existed as they tried to cross no man's land? A process that would lead to almost certain death. And for those people who asked these questions, it almost universally led to a dynamic change in the way they thought and viewed the world. For one man, though, the process of asking and answering these questions would lead to him questioning whether or not his entire theory on human behavior and human relationships had been wrong. He wondered if all his research and all his efforts over the past decades had been for nothing. And for this man, who lived in a country which was a shadow of its former self now, his theories would have to undergo a substantial review and transformation while he himself fought off the specter of depression and despair. And that man is probably the most famous psychologist of all time, Sigmund Freud. And it is at this opportunity I would like to thank you all for tuning in today for our 12th episode of Naples Ultra Freudian Nightmares. And for this episode, we are going to be tracing the ideas and theories of Sigmund Freud and how they impacted not just the school of psychology, but history itself. And this crisis of consciousness that Sigmund Freud was enduring just after the First World War offers us a good place to start our discussion, as this point of turmoil offers us the perfect point to review and examine Freudian theory as he himself was. Freudian psychology was really an extension of this philosophical branch of thought which had been gaining traction over the last three centuries or so. And this branch of thought was dedicated to examining human pleasures and how those pleasures factor into our everyday lives and decisions. 
And this examination of pleasure was really kicked off by this new philosophy of ethics called utilitarianism. And this philosophy was pioneered by Jeremy Bentham and then refined, I guess you could say, by John Stuart Mill, both English philosophers. And the core tenet of utilitarianism is this idea that what is moral equates to what is pleasurable for the most amount of people. So to distill the utilitarian thought into a commonly used expression, what is right is what creates the most amount of good for the most amount of people. And the key thing to remember here is good equals pleasure. Good equals absence of pain. And you can use this criteria to examine any moral decision. So, for example, you're asking yourself, should I throw a rock through my friend's window? Yes or no? And you examine this through a utilitarian lens. You ask yourself, what will cause the most amount of good for the most amount of people? So if you throw the rock, you might get a small amount of pleasure due to the exhilaration of causing mischief. But on the other hand, your friend's going to be pretty pissed that you threw that rock. He's going to have to clean up. His parents are going to have to pay for the window. Your parents might punish you. So overall, the moral decision is to not destroy your friend's property. Pretty self-explanatory, right? One thing to keep in mind, though, about utilitarianism is that it's a consequentialist version of ethics, meaning that the ends justify the means, so to speak, that it's not the act itself that matters in the moral calculation, but rather the results of that action. So, for example, if you're faced with a scenario where you have to kill one person or a handful of people to save a thousand people, then under the utilitarian calculus, you should murder those people in order to save the rest. But the question I'm sure you're all asking is how the heck does this all relate to Sigmund Freud? Well, for Freud, human pleasure was very central to his own psychological thesis. Because after utilitarians got the ball rolling and got people studying and thinking about human pleasure and not just how that interacts with our moral decisions, but how that interacts with other forms of behavior becomes a key point in academic thinking really up until the point of World War I. As this idea of utilitarianism, this idea of what is pleasurable is what is moral, was taken issue with by a lot of different philosophers, and mainly German philosophers. And these German philosophers derided this idea that pleasure was somehow linked to morality, saying that only an Englishman could think something so foolish. So this philosophy was suppressed in other countries around the globe. But then comes the Victorian era, where people's pleasures were seen as somehow unbefitting of normal civilized society. So these pleasures were submerged under this veneer of societal expectation that everyone was expected to be a proper gentleman and a proper lady and be a good Victorian subject. And enter here Sigmund Freud. Because Sigmund Freud looked at this situation and asked himself, 
that if we have these pleasures, these pleasures that human beings want to fulfill, and that some in society, particularly English society, would argue that you have a moral obligation to fulfill, then why the heck aren't people fulfilling them? Why are people submerging their pleasures rather than exploiting them? And that leads us to the genesis of the Freudian unconscious mind. And I'm sure many of you know the three levels of the Freudian unconscious mind, but just for review's sake, we'll go over them here. So at the bottom level, you have what's called the id. And the id is the dark nether regions of your mind, I guess you could say. And not only that, it has the attitude of a petulant five-year-old. So what are the pleasures that appeal to your id? Well, they're sexual pleasures, predominantly. There's also, I guess, what you would call the party pleasures, the pleasure to want to eat a lot of crappy food, to get really messed up on a Saturday night and not remember what happened when you wake up on Sunday morning. But also, there's, I guess you could say, violent urges, urges to hurt people who have wronged you. You know, get that primal, visceral pleasure of getting revenge on someone who has hurt you in some way. But another thing you have to understand about the id is that its appetite is insatiable. It doesn't matter how much you give to it, it's always going to want more and more. That you can never satisfy this beast. And that's why you should never succumb to it. Because as soon as you do, it leads you down a never-ending road of violence and depravity. Then, when you go one step up, you have the ego. And the ego is the most rational part of your being. The place where your logical and reasonable thought stem from. But the ego's main job is to act as sort of a referee between the id, and what is the third level, which is the superego. And when I was going through university, I was always taught that the superego is somehow the one you want to defer to in most situations. So the superego is the one who wants you to hold yourself up to that Victorian standard, right? The one who wants you to fulfill your obligations to society and not just fulfill them exceed them completely. So when I was going through university, the superego was kind of portrayed as the tough but fair headmaster, the one who just wanted you to fulfill your potential. However, my personal thinking on the superego has changed to a more darker tone. And this was because I started reading the works of philosopher, psychoanalyst, man of mystery, Slavoj Žižek. And Žižek talks about the superego in a way that I'd never heard before. And then when I went to sort of read what Freud actually wrote about the subject, I found Zizek's interpretation of the superego far more accurate than I did my university professors. In Zizek's interpretation, the superego is far more foe than friend. The superego is constantly striving to screw you up and degrade your mental status. So, in this interpretation, rather than the superego just trying to help you fill your potential, it instead thrusts upon you impossible-to-reach 
expectations and then laughs at you and insults you when you don't reach those expectations. And should you reach that expectation, all that it will do is just move the goalposts and then never give you any credit for reaching the previous expectation. So instead of the kindly headmaster, think of the superego more as a demented and abusive parent. The kind of parent who, when you bring home a 99% test score, will mock you instead of praising you. They might say something like, you piece of garbage, why did you only get 99%? Why didn't you get 100%? How does it feel to be such a stupid piece of garbage? Or if you bring home a test that you got 100% on, they might say something like, that test was so easy, a monkey could have done it. How do you feel being in the same intelligence class as a monkey? And then of course, once the super ego is done deriding you for your failures, it starts to laugh at you. So either way, you don't want to succumb to the id because you'll just be a hedonist monster or the super ego because then you'll become a depressed sad sack always critical of themselves and never loving what they actually accomplish. However, to throw yet another twist into this whole dynamic, if you simply ignore the id or superego, then the consequences will be just as bad as if you defer to them. So if you never pleasure the id, then what will happen is eventually the id will become so suppressed and so starved of attention that it will explode in some violent fashion unexpectedly. And this explains, you know, the quiet type of people who never do anything wrong, never step on anybody's toes, but for some reason will one day grab a gun and start randomly shooting people. So the Freudian diagnosis for an individual like that was they had their id starved, and eventually the id had enough of it, and took over. It's not always that violent though. I remember when I was going through high school, there was a core group of girls and all they would ever do is study, participate in high school extracurricular activities. You know, they were on the yearbook team, they were the president of every club, that sort of thing. But when college rolled around, they had a complete 180 of their personality. They were out partying all the time, drinking all the time, getting into all kinds of mischief. And what Freud would say, again, is that these girls had starved their id, and when they got to college, their id just came out and overwhelmed their superego. It just couldn't be held back anymore. On the flip side, though, if you ignore your superego, you won't have some sort of violent outburst. What is more likely to happen is that you will have a short and unaccomplished life that if you don't at least concede to some societal expectations, then your life will be nasty, brutish, and short. And that's where your ego comes in. Your ego is the most important part of your mind as it has the incredibly tenuous job of trying to balance the needs of the superego and the id and making sure everyone is fulfilled to at least some extent to the point where they don't become so starved that they overwhelm the ego and take over. So your ego's like some kind of FBI negotiator, right? And the id's holding your mind hostage and talking to your ego saying, 
you know, if you don't let me go out and party this weekend, then I'm coming out, I'm taking over, and you're not going to like it. Well, at the same time, your super ego is yelling at the negotiator. We don't negotiate with terrorists. We have homework to do this weekend. We have errands we need to run. There's just simply no way we can party. Don't be a moron and concede. And then your super ego somehow has to manage these two forces and go back to the id and say, you know what, man, we can't party this weekend, but uh, next weekend looks like we're free. Can you wait until next weekend to come out? And then your super ego comes back and says, hey, if you let him go out and party next weekend, I'm going to make him feel like the biggest guilty piece of garbage for not sitting at home and doing his societal obligations. And of course, the ego must then placate the super ego somehow, and on and on it goes. So to distill this all back into the point we started with, for Freud, pleasure fulfillment is the most defining force in human behavior. And the reason we don't always cave to pleasure or wish fulfillment is because we have to negotiate with these societal expectations, but neither one can become too strong or overwhelming. And as much as psychoanalysts today don't want to admit it, everything in Freudian psychology comes back and can be linked to wish fulfillment. For example, dreams are a huge part of Freudian psychology, that dreams in Freud's mind represent messages from your unconscious mind trying to reach out and send a communication to the conscious one. So I remember in one class, my professor told us about a dream her husband had in which he was standing underneath a giant horse, and the giant horse was peeing all over him. And I remember when she asked us what we thought that dream meant, I told her it meant he probably really needs to go to the bathroom. But um, if you were looking at it from a Freudian point of view, it probably means he has some sort of deep, unfulfilled sexual fantasy that has yet to manifest itself, in reality, and the it is saying, hey man, let's make this happen. But to be fair, even if he needed to go to the bathroom, that is still some form of wish fulfillment. Even defense mechanisms relate back to this idea of wish fulfillment. And personally, defense mechanisms are one of my favorite aspects of Freudian psychology, and probably the aspect of Freudian psychology which endures the most to our modern world. So what defense mechanisms are, are techniques used by your ego to try and obfuscate or deflect anxiety, pain, or otherwise bad thoughts or feelings. Basically, it's your unconscious mind trying to somehow distort reality in a way that makes you feel less anxious, upset, scared, etc. So one very common defense mechanism is called displacement. And displacement is when you take harmful feelings created by one object, usually a powerful one, and usually channel those negative feelings and thoughts into a less threatening object. So a clear example of displacement is when, say, you had a bad day at work, your boss yelled at you, you feel like crap, and then you come home to your wife, 
and then yell at her because you can't yell at your boss, but you can channel these negative feelings onto her and then work through them that way. Obviously, never something you want to do if you want to stay in a happy and healthy relationship, but why do you want to displace your feelings? Well, it goes back to wish fulfillment because in reality, what you would really like to do is probably punch your boss in the face. Yet, you can't do that for a variety of different reasons. So, instead, you use defense mechanisms to deal with this anxiety. Now that we have the core aspects of Freudian psychology, let's bring it back to where we were at the start of the episode and ask ourselves, why did Freud despair in his theories after World War I? And it became clear to him, at least, that there was something about human behavior, there was something about human nature that Freud had fundamentally missed in his first outing. Up until World War I, Freud had never had to live through a major war between two industrialized superpowers. There had certainly been some minor wars in his lifetime, but definitely nothing on the scale of World War I. So the psychology of warfare and how human beings would interact with warfare was something he didn't explore. He had no reason to explore. But after the devastation of World War I, Freud realized that his current theories had no way of explaining why human beings did what they did in that war. It can't be resolved simply by this id-ego, super-ego interaction. That while yes, the id definitely can have some violent tendencies, and yes, there are societal expectations exemplified in the super-ego that must be fulfilled, expectations of duty, of honor, of fighting for your country, but those shouldn't override your natural survival instincts. How did men get up out of the trenches and face certain death after watching wave after wave of their comrades get mowed down in no man's land? It just simply didn't make any sense. After some reflection, Freud certainly didn't abandon the core of his psychoanalytic ideas. What he did do was add another layer onto them. One thing Freud gets a lot of criticism for is his inflexibility in his belief in his own ideas and the infallibility of his own ideas. If he ever say that he's wrong, he can just say, oh, you're in denial, and that proves my point even more. Great system, right? You're always right, no matter how vehemently people deny that you're right. But I think this criticism of Freud is a little unfair, as we have an example right here where his core ideas were fundamentally shaken. And as a result, he changed and adapted his theories. So what did he do? Well, in 1920, Freud published a book called Beyond the Pleasure Principle, in which he outlined a couple new concepts that he was bringing in to Freudian theory. And the main one, for our purposes, is a theory called the death drive. And keeping within Freudian principles, this still has to do with wish fulfillment. So at its core, the death drive is a new player. It's a new piece on the Freudian chessboard that is your unconscious mind. 
And this new piece opposes the sort of pleasure instincts, the life instincts, your instincts for sexual gratification, for reproduction, and so on and so forth. And what the death drive is, is an unconscious wish to return to the elements from which you came. As Freud puts it, a return to your inorganic chemistry. And one of the reasons he came up with this idea was because he had been working with several World War I soldiers that were continually reviving their traumatic experiences through dreams, that is, from the war. And because they were having these dreams, which were very contradictory to the pleasure principle, continually returning them to that point of pain and agony, Freud theorized this was the death drive at work. That secretly, the death drive did not get its wish in the war, and it was unconsciously reminding the subject of the trauma in hopes that they would fulfill said death drive. And this death drive was in constant conflict with what Freud called the eros, which is your life force, your life drive. And going back to what we said before, those are your pleasure principles. After Freud, the death drive would be labeled Thanatos, after a Greek harbinger of death. Unfortunately, though, the death drive is not something which endures the test of time, that most people discount this idea in our modern lifetimes. But I still think it's an interesting thought, especially when you think about victims of post-traumatic stress disorder, a horrible disease, one which I hope I'm never afflicted with. But when you ask yourself, why would our unconscious mind continually relive these traumatic experiences? And when you recall that a far too often outcome of post-traumatic stress disorder is the suicide of the subject, well, I don't think it's unreasonable to hypothesize that there is some sort of unconscious death wish there, that there is some sort of unconscious want to end the suffering. Just something to consider. But now, let's take the final part of this topic to examine the legacy of Sigmund Freud and how he impacts our world today. I think the number one legacy of Sigmund Freud is that he was the first one to really hypothesize in a systematic way that human beings had more needs than just our base ones. That besides food, water, shelter, human beings needed safety, they needed friendship, they needed love, and with that sex. And if we are to suppress and ignore these needs, well, it will have disastrous consequences for the mental health of the individual and, by extension, the mental health of society, that we have to come together and recognize that human beings are fundamentally flawed, and that's okay, that there are healthy ways to channel these flaws that we have into societally constructive behaviors, that through this process that Freud calls sublimation, which is another one of his psychological defenses, we can channel these impulsive and destructive urges into something truly spectacular. For example, an author can channel his violent tendencies into creating a great work of fiction. But most of all, 
I think Freud got us thinking about how our pleasures, how our wants, how our needs, how our drives affect our behavior. And that's something that people previously weren't thinking a lot about and something that honestly in our society, I don't think we do enough research on. Unfortunately, in a lot of academic circles, Freud has fallen out of vogue, and that's mainly because of some of the craziness of his ideas, some of which we have not talked about in this podcast. For example, I think we all know the Oedipus Complex is not something which really exists. The Oedipus Complex is this Freudian idea that we all secretly want to grow up and marry our mothers or fathers. We all kind of scoff and say, ha, that's ridiculous. And we do rightly so reject a lot of these more far-fetched Freudian ideas. But by doing so, we end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater and end up dismissing all of Freudian psychology. And doing this simply doesn't benefit us whatsoever. After all, for all his craziness, Freud's ideal life boiled down to something incredibly simple. To Sigmund Freud, the meaning of life was two things, love and work. Two things that if you dedicate yourself to in equal measure, you will have a happy and fulfilling life. Welcome everybody to the second segment of Naples Ultra. I'm your host, Spencer Downing. And as always in this segment, we start off with some current events and then go into some listener submissions. Uh, I've received quite a lot of submissions over the past little while. Uh, don't worry if your submission doesn't get answered in this episode. I try to answer all of them as time goes on. So if you don't get uh, your chance this time, it'll come around next time. But let's talk about current events, and uh, I'm going to try my best not to let this take up a huge chunk of time, because there is a lot that has gone on in the world in the past week or so. As always, we start with our continuing primary updates. So, last Tuesday, we had three states vote on the Democratic side and two on the Republican side. Let's start with the Republicans, because... Theirs is quite easy and straightforward to talk about, whereas I have a lot to say about the Democrats. On the Republican side, Arizona and Utah voted. In Arizona, Donald Trump won handily. And in Utah, Ted Cruz completely crushed all opposition. It was the first time Donald Trump didn't get second place, I believe, in a primary so far. All in all, good day for Donald Trump. Arizona had far more delegates than Utah. So he took out the winning prize again and is unshaken in his march towards the Republican nomination. On the Democratic side, we had Idaho, Utah, and Arizona vote. In Utah and Idaho, Bernie Sanders crushed it to a far greater extent than anyone was expecting, achieving 80% of the vote in both primaries. But the main Subject of contention is the Arizona primary, and it was an absolute disaster. And unless you know someone who lives in Arizona, 
or read a lot of independent media outlets, you'll probably have no idea what a travesty this was. So Hillary Clinton did win Arizona by a margin of about 60 to 40. Overall, though, this was a good night for Bernie Sanders because of his blowout victories in Idaho and Utah. He walked away with about 57% of the delegates that were up for grabs that night, and he needs 57% of the remaining delegates to win the nomination. So overall, he remained on track to actually make a comeback. Let's talk about what happened on the ground in Arizona, though. First off, we have the closing of about 140 polling stations in the most populous county in Arizona. In 2008, within this county, they had 200 polling stations. In 2016, they had 60 polling stations, equating to about one polling station per 20,000 voters, which when you think about the logistics of that, that's insane. I've been a polling station volunteer before, and you start to get overwhelmed and overworked when there's like 50 people in lineup waiting to come and vote. I can't imagine what it's like to have thousands of people lined up in lines that stretch on for blocks and, in some cases, miles. So I can imagine how woefully unprepared these volunteers were for such numbers, but that's not the worst part. The worst part is the voters themselves who had to wait in line upwards of five hours in order to be able to vote. There is absolutely no excuse for that. There is no justification for why people should have to wait five hours before they can vote. But that's not the worst part. The worst part is that huge swaths of Democrats mysteriously had their party affiliation changed from Democrat to Independent. And because Arizona is a closed primary, Independents cannot vote in it. So you have these stories of people waiting three hours in line to get to the polling station, and then they get to the polling station, and whoopsie, seems like there was some kind of computer error here. You're not a Democrat, you're an Independent, see you later. And then you have this utter travesty where Hillary Clinton was called the winner of the Arizona primary after less than 1% of the vote had come in and there were thousands of people still waiting in line to vote. I have never seen an election called before everyone had had the chance to vote in my lifetime. That is, of course, excluding scenarios where you have large countries like Canada or general elections in the United States that span multiple time zones. Long story short, though, if you're American, you should be ashamed of this primary. You should be angry about this and stand up and demand better. You can't let a precedent of undemocratic actions set in because all that will do is slowly erode your democratic rights over time. I could talk about the Arizona primaries for a lot longer, but let's move on. We had, as well, this week, another terrorist attack in Europe, this time in Belgium, specifically Brussels. A few bombs went off, one in a subway and one in an airport, I believe, but I think they were able to find and defuse the airport one before it went off, killing around 30 people and injuring hundreds more. And as with any terrorist attack... 
We stand in solidarity with the Belgian people and express our utmost sympathies. It was strange I was reading conflicting reports about this attack. In some reports I was reading, they were praising the Belgian officials because these attacks did not seem like they were attacks which were methodically planned, but rather the type of attack that someone who is desperate to attack before they got caught would conduct. So I was reading accounts like it was clear that the Belgian authorities were on these guys' trail, they had something far worse planned, but because the Belgian authorities got there, they were able to prevent them from attack, which would have been worse if they had carried out their aims completely. On the other hand, though, I'm reading reports about how shoddy Belgian intelligence really was. They had received multiple reports about the danger of these bombers, specifically one coming from Turkey, alerting Belgium to the fact that a high-risk Muslim extremist had crossed over into Europe. But Belgian intelligence seemingly ignored all these warnings and just sat on their hands. So what I come away with is a frame of reference that says this attack could have been a lot worse, so thankfully it wasn't, but at the same time it could have been easily prevented because these guys have clear warning signs surrounding them i mean one guy who had a clear link to one of the attackers involved in the paris attack late last year so there are clear warning signs that these guys exhibit and there's absolutely nothing wrong with pursuing those warning signs to their ultimate conclusion whatever conclusion that may be I know the political climate in Europe revolving around assimilation of Muslim immigrants is very heated, but no one is going to get upset at you for investigating someone who looks like a clear danger. So for now, let's support the victims, be thankful it wasn't any worse than it was, and of course, remain vigilant in the future. We also have the death of Rob Ford who died at 46 due to a prolonged battle with cancer. And Rob Ford was definitely a very controversial politician. For those of you who don't know, the former mayor of Toronto who admitted to smoking crack cocaine while in office. He leaves behind a checkered legacy, but all in all, I see most Canadians mourning his passing and coming together in solidarity with the Ford family in this time of struggle for them. But how will Rob Ford be remembered in the annals of Canadian political history and, to a larger extent, world political history? Well, that's still an open question. But for now, I say that I will miss Rob Ford and his antics, and it's sad to have such a character leave the face of the earth. Last thing to touch on briefly in terms of current events, we brought up the Gian Gomeshi trial in an earlier podcast. And that trial has come to its conclusion, leading in the complete acquittal of Gomeshi. Yet there are still people out there who insist that he's guilty, insist that the system is flawed. I went into this court case with an open mind, just willing to accept the evidence, whatever the evidence may be. And it was clear as the trial continued that the evidence against Gomeshi was pretty weak. And in the judge's ruling, he slammed the witnesses as borderline lying on the stand. It was a pretty harsh judgment. 
And I think the lesson here is clear. It doesn't matter what crime it is. If you have been a victim of a crime, you should report it immediately. It doesn't matter what crime it is. The longer you wait to report it, the likelihood of you seeing any type of justice is diminished. Especially in this case, when the allegations happened over a decade ago, and all we have to go on for this trial is your word against his word. And in that case, it's an uphill battle for the prosecution. And with that, we are at the end of our current events wrap-up, so let's get into some viewer submissions. Our first submission comes from James Phillips. He writes, Dear Spencer, Recently, I have wrote a paper about Cuba allowing citizens in Havana to access the Internet. Now, this is very new, and although it has access to social media and such, it's still monitored and has a high cost for the average Cuban person. My question for you is, do you see it as a possibility another nation may use this to their advantage and encourage a revolution? Cough, America, cough, cough. Here's my reasoning and thought. Although limited to a certain user chunk, a good chunk of them are students who still search social media. No nation has ever attempted to bombard another country's internet services or users. This could be the first in the world. Cuba is also new, and it doesn't have the IT support to stop targeted outside attacks. I believe a nation could take advantage of this and be the first to pioneer a form of warfare which targets civilians by converting their population through constant propaganda. Thanks for taking the time to read this. And it is very satisfactory. Uh, sincerely, James Phillips. So this brings up something that's also happening in the news recently and something I just haven't been watching very much because there's all these other things happening simultaneously. And that is easing the trade embargo around Cuba, which America has endured for decades, as well as normalizing American and Cuban relations. So as to your question, I don't think the United States will undergo cyber warfare against Cuba. I mean, what does it have to gain, really? I think it's inevitable that the Cuban system of government will change very shortly without any intervention from America. All the Castros are now on the last legs of their lives. And there's a big question of what happens when those leaders finally die. What will happen to Cuba? What will the new government look like? As well, through the process of Americans just visiting Cuba, that will open up the Cuban population as the two citizens get to interact with one another for the first time in many decades. And with what you alluded to, the internet opening up and internet usage opening up in Cuba, that will also broaden the horizons of many students who will look to change the system they live under. Because openness of information is always the best way to defeat governments who favor closed access to information. What I do hope, however, is that the Cuban people hold on to the things that make their culture and society great. When you compare Cuba to countries like Canada or the United States, they do pale in comparison in terms of their standard of living. 
But when you compare them to their neighbors, their standard of living is far higher. In the North American continent, Cuba has the third highest standard of living. And when you combine South America, Cuba has the fifth highest standard of living among the two continents. So to answer your question, James, no, I don't believe that the United States will engage in any type of cyber warfare campaign against Cuba. They have simply no reason to. That government is now going to change naturally on its own, and I hope that it progresses towards a system of government which favors openness and democracy. Yet, I still hope they hold on to the facets of Cuban society that have made them so much more successful than their Caribbean neighbors, such as their strong healthcare system, their strong educational system, their neighborhood police system, which makes Cuba the safest country in the Caribbean for tourists to visit. So long story short, I hope Cuba keeps the good, gets rid of the bad, and moves to becoming a more open and democratic society. I hope that answer was satisfactory, James. Our next question comes from Andre, and I was supposed to answer this question long ago. I said I would answer this question long ago, and I hope people keep me accountable when I say things like that and let me know if I haven't fulfilled on promises that I've made in the past. Anyway, Andre writes, Spencer, I have a question that goes with the theme of the next topic. Do you believe that we are on the eve of a true new big war between nations or alliances, Russia slash NATO, etc., because of the rising tensions and escalating conflict and investment of foreign powers in the Middle East? If not, will there be wounds that would not or cannot be mended that would cause a war? An example is the Treaty of World War One, more precisely, the Treaty of Versailles. Personally, I think there's not going to be a war between two major industrialized powers for quite some time. At the point we are in our civilization, I don't think there's anything or at least enough that can be gained through war to justify the cost in both lives and materials. As well, there's currently no scenario in which a country that is not the United States would win such a global war. The most these other nations could hope to do is tie. So when you think about military conflicts, you really have to think about them in a logistical sense. I feel that most people seem to think that the army just shows up there and that's all it needs. But you'll hear scenarios like, well, what if the Russians come through Alaska or come over the North Pole and conduct a surprise attack against North America? Such an attack would never be successful in the long term because of logistics. Let's say the Russians are able to sneak an army of 200,000 men into Alaska before the United States is alerted to their presence. That army might be able to do a lot of damage in the short term, but in the long term, what's going to happen is the United States is going to take its massive and overwhelmingly powerful navy and use it to prevent Russian supply ships from crossing over the ocean. So now this army in Alaska no longer has any supplies. Eventually, they're going to run out of food and ammo 
as the American Air Force bombards them continually and will have no choice but to eventually surrender. What if the Russians come over the North Pole? Well, that's an even messier scenario because there are no waters on Earth that are more difficult to navigate and send resources through than the waters of the Northern Arctic. And then if they actually land in Northern Canada, where are they going to go? That area is so underdeveloped that there are almost no roads, no towns, just wide open wilderness. And trying to maintain stable supply lines through the Northern Arctic Oceans and through this unkempt and barren wilderness would be nothing short of a nightmare. What Russia could do is probably invade its European neighbors fairly easily, but again, that would be a short-term victory as America and their allies could mobilize forces in Europe and eventually halt the Russian advance and push them back into their own territory. The only scenario which might succeed is if Russia and China worked together in a war against America, and even then, they could never actually invade the American continent itself. The reason being is that the American Navy is so much more powerful than the Russian and Chinese Navy combined that they would be able to destroy any supply lines they would try and create. So unless there's a scenario where more is to be gained through another total war than is to be lost, I don't think we're going to see another eruption of a World War III type of scenario any time soon. What the most likely scenario would be is that we overuse our resources and suddenly, instead of resources being abundant, they become scarce. So resources that were formerly acquired through trade now must be acquired through force of arms. Anyway, Andre, thanks for the question. I hope that answer was satisfactory. Our next question comes from Dieter. And Dieter writes, Hello, Spencer. In episode 11, you talked about the importance of studying history in order to appreciate the freedoms we all have nowadays. I wanted to ask you your thoughts on how harmful, biased, or selective history lessons are. To explain the question a bit further, I am Belgian. Again, we stand in solidarity with the people of Belgium after this attack. Anyway, continuing. I am a Belgian who went to Japan for a year on an exchange program where I attended high school first and second year for the duration of my stay. I wish I got to spend a year in Japan. I only got to spend a month in Japan. Uh, anyway, among the classes I attended was the history class. For the first time, we went over Napoleonic history, which was a bit of a joke to the teacher, as those events had just about no impact on Japan itself. Later, we went over World War I for several weeks, and the teacher kept highlighting how the Japanese went to aid the Allies in Europe against the Nazi Germans, and how they contributed oh so much to the Allied cause. The next thing we discussed was the Cold War. The gap in time periods was painfully obvious. I browsed the entire history books of the first and second year World War I was rather in the middle of the second year's book for reference, and there wasn't even a chapter about World War II. Even worse, they hardly even mentioned it. I will not pretend 
like I understood all the things in my book, as my Japanese isn't that brilliant, but I could find mentions or maps or anything else in the time frame of about 1930 to 1945. Well, I could find lots of references to just about any other time period from antiquity to our current time. Another similar instance happened when I was talking about Belgium to my host family and they asked me some questions about my home country. I told them a little anecdote about a great uncle of mine, the events of which took place in World War One. Now, when I mentioned the presence of German soldiers in my country and so on, my host parents would look at each other a bit cross. Clearly being caught off guard and even seeming rather displeased by me, supposedly talking about the second World War One, I quickly felt like I had to explain to them that I was just talking about the First World War in order to defuse the situation. Japan, in fact, seems to be quite pleased with itself on their minor contributions to the Allies in World War One. On the point, I would like you to discuss, as I was wondering, what you think about countries biasing their history when countries sweep bad events under the rug and highlight their great moments in order to give a more positive outlook in their own country, even more to their children. Did you ever experience such a point at any time in Canadian history lessons? How do you think this potential bias or being selective in one's books might affect a population? Do you think this is necessarily a bad thing? Another thing I would like you to touch on in your current events section is the German regional election, which just happened, mostly focused on whether or not the German people would punish or reward Merkel's immigration policy, Germany being arguably the most important country in Europe, as well as being the driving force behind the current immigration policy. This deserves a segment, in my opinion. Thank you for the great podcast so far, and I will certainly continue to contribute in the future. Sincerely, Dieter. Editor's note. I just realized when I was editing this podcast that I completely forgot to answer the second part of your question, Dieter. I'll come around to it in the next NAPLUS update. I like this example, Dieter. This is a great example in terms of countries which bias their history. And there's no question, Japan is the worst at this. They have never once acknowledged or apologized for their role in atrocities that happened throughout their tenure in World War II. And there's even been instances of people who come forward and say, listen, it's time for us to acknowledge our role in World War II being assassinated. And I think this does have something to do with Japanese culture. They hate feeling ashamed, they hate being ashamed, being dishonored, so it's much easier just to sweep it all under the rug. I remember in high school, I took Japanese, and that was when I actually got to go to Japan for a month. But in the class itself, I wanted to do a project on the Japanese involvement in World War II, and my Japanese teacher kiboshed it, said I couldn't do it. I fought it hard, and got into a lot of trouble for fighting it, but eventually I had to cave in. But on to the core of your question, whitewashing history in a positive light for your own country never does anybody any good. And for the most part, I never really experienced anything like that in my Canadian history classes, 
we talked both about some of our accomplishments in the world, such as our accomplishment at the Battle of Vimy Ridge in World War One, but we also looked at some of the nastier aspects of our history, such as residential schools for Native American children, such as interning Japanese people during World War II. So I got a nice three-dimensionalized picture of Canadian history, and I try and three-dimensionalize any history I read, recognizing where the biases may lie, and then doing my best to find alternate sources of information which may alleviate those biases. But the main problem here is that if you ignore the bad your country has done in its historical record, then you'll never be able to learn the most important lessons from history, which is what things you should avoid in the future. So it is absolutely wrong of Japan to try and cover up its involvement in World War II. But I feel that there is another phenomenon going on that I'd like to address, and something that can be just as bad as trying to cover up parts of your history. And that is ignoring good aspects or diminishing good aspects of your history based on the political climate surrounding it. And for this one, I'd really like to talk about the British Empire. And in today's society, saying anything good about the imperial legacy of the British Empire is seen as a bad thing to do. And there's no question about it. The British Empire did some awful things. But you can't ignore the good that it did in the world either. That's just as bad as focusing on only the bad. At the end of the day, the legacy of the British Empire is mixed. There is some good and some bad in there. And pretending that it's all one way to one side or to the other side does everyone a disservice. Let's take a guy like Gandhi. Let's say instead of being born in British-ruled India, Gandhi, or a Gandhi-esque figure, was born in the Soviet Union and agitated for the independence of one of the smaller peoples within the Soviet Republic. What do you think would have happened to him? Well, he would have been exiled to Siberia if he was lucky. Yet, for all the ills of the British Empire, Gandhi was still able to promote his cause of Indian freedom without having to worry about being hanged by the British government. What brought him down in the end was actually a Hindu nationalist who claimed that Gandhi was not extreme enough to fulfill their agenda. So, long story short, all I'm trying to say here is celebrate the good parts of your history. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, you need to reflect upon the bad parts of your history because no country is perfect. We've all done good and bad things in our history and the only way we're going to move forward to a better future is to understand the complete and unbiased picture of our country's history. Thanks for writing in, Dieter. I hope that answer was satisfactory. And with that, we are at the end of our 12th episode of Naples Ultra. One quick announcement before we go. I just want to say that now that I actually know what my work schedule is going to be, I don't think there'll be any problem in continuing this podcast in a bi-weekly fashion. 
So that's some good news right there. If you'd like to submit any feedback to the podcast, please reach out to me. My email is spencer at Podcast. And now let's talk a little bit about the next topic. And I'm not sure how I'm going to frame the next topic, but I've got an idea that I'm exploring and hopefully can turn into a coherent episode. And my theory is that we are living through a time that is like the 1905 revolution in Russia, where we have mass groups of people clamoring for change. But despite that, it doesn't look like change will be achieved this year, that rather it will be delayed and that this delaying of change might set us up for a far more violent and counterproductive 1917 type of revolution in the future. So with that, let me reveal this week's question, which is, what do you believe is the most important historical lesson from your own country and why? And now here are the answers to last week's question, which was about biases. And at what point do they cross that line into destructiveness? And with that, I'll see everybody in two weeks. Thank you, and good night. Our first response comes from Daikon, and all he writes is simply that biases are the true gods of mankind. And Dre writes in and says, I have to say that we are always biased when we make decisions though we can make successful attempts to the contrary. An example is choosing what we will eat, say chocolate or fruit. If you like one more than the other, you will choose the one you like. Another example is if you see your friend in a fight with someone you don't know, you will generally always side with your friend. On a side note, history can be biased since unfortunately it is written by the dominant power or, more aptly put, victory justice. Kajartan writes in with a response, but uh, I'm only going to have time to read the first and last paragraph. He writes, As soon as you start seeing only two sides, enemies and allies, and refuse, often subconsciously, make an effort to concert with people you don't initially agree with, oftentimes you will see them as a straw man. Ultimately, it is hard to say how much of what you said in the previous episode was influenced by your socialist glasses and how much of it were your views that wouldn't change without said glasses. Be ready when wearing glasses since wearing them for too long might change your eyesight. And that's it for now, everybody. Thanks so much to everyone who answered this week's question and we'll be back two weeks from now with episode 13 of Naples Ultra.